You're listening to the Men Who Made Me podcast, all about discovering healthy masculinity, male identity, and more, as told by the men who made us. Today, we're interviewing Jake Marquez Rollison, and you'll find out soon that this is a special episode because we recorded all the way out from Switzerland. Recently, Caleb and I ended up at the same place in the same chalet in Switzerland at a place called Labrie. And, okay, actually, I invited myself on the Miller family vacation who was already going, (laughs) but the trip and the many plane rides over for a week was well worth the experience. Today, I'm excited to share all the insight, wisdom, and fun we shared with Jake. Heads up, this interview was done in a pretty tight-knit chalet, so there might be some additional noise here and there. That being said, we actually thought it kind of added to the ambiance, the creaking floors, and the cars passing by, maybe giving you a window into our time there. Not to make you jealous or anything. All that to say, let's dive into our conversation now with Jake Marquez Rollison. Well, Jake Rollison, welcome to the podcast. Actually, your name's not Jake Rolls anymore, is it? No, that's right. Uh, so my wife and I combined our last name, so it's uh, I go by Jake Marquez Rollison. Oh. Okay, Ooh. welcome to the podcast, Jake Marquez Rollison. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> we're glad to have you here. Um, so this is a bit of a unique podcast so mm-hmm. far amongst the other ones we've done. Um, we've taken The Men Who Made Me Abroad. <laughs> First international episode. First international episode. <laughs> so currently, we are in... Switzerland. And the connection here between Jake and myself is that he taught me a New Testament (laughs) back in, I believe, seventh grade. Um, So that's when we first met. He was straight out of college, um, which is weird because I'm older than he was at that time. Um, (laughs) And you guys act in such similar ages. And we're goons. <laughs> Definitely big clowns. <laughs> I literally watched Caleb run into Jake's arms when we arrived here. <laughs> it was an emotional touching it was uh, good. reunion. Yeah. It was beautiful. Um, so, I guess briefly, it's fun to call you Jake now instead of Mr. Rollison. Um, As but, you should. <laughs> but um, could you give just a, a brief background on a bit of uh, your life history quickly summarized um, and then after that explain where we are in Switzerland and what this place is. Mm-hmm. Sure. So uh, yeah, first thank you guys both for, I'm very honored to be part of this podcast and of course I'm delighted to see Caleb again and to meet Paige. <laughs> um, so yeah, my name is Jake and I am an American uh, I've been living and in, in Europe for about 12 years now, um, wandering around um, through several different countries. And as part of this wandering, I've done uh, some various studies as well that have, have led me through all these different countries um, in theology and philosophy. Um, and then more recently in, in French, like, you know, French context stuff. So that's made me learn French. Um, and then I, I married a lovely woman named Melanie uh, in France, and uh, now we live in Switzerland. <laughs> so uh, that's the very brief version. Is that okay? That's great. So uh, where we are now, we're in Switzerland at a place called Le Brie. And uh, Le Brie in French means the shelter, very simply. And that's what it is. It's a shelter. Um, 
there are two ways I, I think that are helpful to qualify that. Um, the director here, Richard, likes to say it's a shelter for those who need a shelter. Mm. And so that means uh, anyone is welcome. Um, and usually we do get people who need a shelter in one way or another. Um, whether they've burned out and need just to take a break or, or at a transition point in their life and need time to think it through. Or um, more, I guess more historically, Libri is known as a shelter for honest questions. Um, so Libri is a, a kind of Christian, I would say, a retreat center or a study center. Um, so people come here sometimes with questions like, is, is God even real? Um, what about my, how do I reconcile my faith with science? Uh, mm. What is truth? Uh, how do I deal with postmodernism? Things like that. Mm. Um, but sometimes more practical questions too. Uh, like, how do I deal with this, this thing I've been wrestling with in my life? Or, um, so yeah, anyway, Libri is a shelter and we welcome students and travelers and uh, for short times or up to three months at a time. Um, yeah, I guess that's the big stuff. Uh, you could say everything here happens in, in community, which is mm. part of the challenge and part of the beauty of it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. How did you there. get involved with Libri? So uh, Melanie and I had each heard about Libri independently of one another. And then... Um, just after we started dating about five years ago, um, we thought she had, she asked me, Hey, would you want to go check out this thing called Libri since we're not that far away? And I said, absolutely, let's go. And so we came and we loved it. And so from the first time we thought, Oh man, it would be great to, to spend a longer time there. Hmm. Um, so over the last couple of years, we came back for longer periods of time. And then, uh, when we knew that they would have an opening in their staff, we came down and and jumped at the opportunity to, to be part of the team. Awesome. Very cool. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we'll hear a little bit more about Libri as we go through some of these questions um, that we've got for you today. Um, but to start, we'd like to get your definition on masculinity. We've talked about it a lot in our episodes so far, but realize we haven't put a lot of effort into defining it as mm-hmm. one thing and so that has made it I guess complicated (laughs) but it's good because we want to ask questions so we want people to be thinking about that at the same time it's important to have something to go off of Mm -hmm. um, or at least in in interviews to understand the perspective of the person we're interviewing what Mm -hmm. they believe masculinity to be Mm -hmm. Um, so if you could give a brief definition of masculinity um, and what some of the key components of that are versus simply being human um, cause those can sometimes be conflated or confused. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, well, I, I mentioned I've been studying theology and philosophy and that means I think two things first that I, my faith will probably inform this whether I want it to or not. So be aware that I'm not claiming, uh, anything beyond that. I'm, I'm aware that my faith is informing these answers, but also the philosophical side means that I might, <laughs> I might be a bit abstract or evasive. <laughs> but uh, it's a good question. I think masculinity is very hard to define. Um, so, yeah, what I'm going to say, I don't think it's a hard and fast, absolute answer. Uh, what I'm going to say is probably more striving to describe something that I experience but can't, mm. can't put into words. Or in other words, I can't step outside my experience of it. Mm. I can only uh, try to communicate some of it. So on a kind of abstract or philosophical level, I think to talk about being male or or masculine definitely immediately implies the other side of the equation, the feminine or the female. Mm. So 
to me, what that says already is that masculinity is, is learning how to just be and know part of, of this larger whole, Mm -hmm. um, how to play one part of a relationship that's bigger than, than me. Um, so being human, I would say, is being part of this thing that includes these two, these, this masculine and feminine. Mm -hmm. So that means that being a man is to play one role, one part in that role of being human. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Beyond that, I guess there is more that could be said, though I think so much of it is so so very contextual or um, related to the place or time or culture that one comes from. Um, so if we set aside that kind of abstract level on a practical level, um, and what I'm going to say now is by no means exclusive to men. In fact, I'm, I'm sure that these things are not exclusive to men. Um, in my own life and my thinking, several of the things I associate with being a man, I would say the first is to keep your word, um, even when it hurts. Mm. Um, there's a verse from the biblical book of Proverbs that I love that says, um, he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. So, um, the combat to conquer a city is less important than the, or less hard even than the combat to, to have kind of self-control or, or rule yourself a bit. In other words, it's much harder to act wisely than to demonstrate like physical strength, for example. Mm. Um, to me, being a man implies using the power that I have or the strength that I have for the purpose of care uh, of those people and things that are entrusted to me. Um, so it's loving care, not a kind of domination or, or tyranny. Um, and then finally, I would say that um, being a man, and this is by no means limited to, to oh. being a man, it's okay. You're fine. You can come in. <laughs> They'll edit it later. Sorry, Jake. We did not edit that. Um, it Im it involves um, both freedom and love uh, together. Um, you need the courage to recognize what must be done, whether it's hard or whether you're afraid or not. You have to do it. Um, and so that courage implies doing it. So just one kind of example to close this section. Um I think it's obvious with something like World War II, like we think back to that and we think, oh, you know, you need the courage to do what's right. Mm. Uh, and we can say that because we look at it from a distance. But um, it's harder in things like have a hard conversation with your friend or, or someone in your family. And that requires just as much courage. And, and yet we often <laughs> uh, treat it as less important to avoid doing it. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I guess I'll stop there for now. What were some... I don't know, what were some roadblocks to developing your own... One of the things that we've heard as a pattern in some of our interviews is that the definition for what being a man means changed for them over time. So it started in one place and it kind of grew and developed and shaped as they wrestled with it. What are some of the, the roadblocks you had into understanding your own definition or identity of masculinity? And I don't know, like looking back on those obstacles or roadblocks, is there any advice you would give to men who are in the same position wrestling through that? Yeah. Um, as I describe this, it's going to sound impersonal. It's going to sound uh, like I'm giving a sociological, a sociological answer rather than a, a personal one, but know that they're intertwined. <laughs> um, so I, growing, having grown up in the States and now lived in Europe for some time, I think Western culture, but American culture particularly, encourages a kind of prolonged adolescence. Mm -hmm. um, for example, in contrast with uh, 
Jewish culture where the bar mitzvah, the becoming a man happens at like 13 years old or so. Um, instead of that, we're more on the side of, oh yeah, keep doing what you want and, and push back the serious things until later and, and uh, enjoy yourself, enjoy your time. And so it tends to be a little bit selfish. Um, I think another thing that Western and especially American culture encourages is a kind of workaholism. Um, we, we make, you know, the salary or productivity or our job, the kind of measure of what a man or, or a woman can do. Um, which I think is garbage. I think that's just a lie. Um, I think workaholism leads us to not caring for ourselves or being attentive to others. Um, I guess next I would suggest that the culture I grew up in uh, has a hard time, especially um, with men, um, for giving them a meaningful framework for living a meaningful life. Mm. Uh, We often seek escape or refuge from, from the kind of lack of purpose we feel in our lives, whether in video games or Netflix binges or too much music, etc. Mm. Not that any of those things are stupid, evil, or wrong, um, but they can serve as placebos that, that keep us from finding meaning in our embodied life, the, in the place and time we live and in our context. Uh, sorry if this is a bit of a long answer. <laughs> um, I also wanted to say that I think American culture in particular, for men, is very um, kind of emotionally restricted. Um, America, we wrote into our, uh, our founding documents the idea of the pursuit of happiness. Um, so we're good at that, but we're not, that doesn't really help us deal with sadness or grief or even joy is not happiness or, or lots of other very real emotions. So I would say men especially are discouraged from showing a lot of emotion. So I guess what that leads me to for advice for, for young men would be like, be passionate about your work. Like you're supposed to enjoy what you're doing. You're supposed to find some value in it, uh, but no wise limits. Don't make your work your life. Don't uh, void yourself into it. And um, a rule that I try to obey for myself is to work hard, but always be interruptible. If somebody needs something, that person who's present is probably more important than whatever it is I'm doing. Mm. Um, A second piece of advice would be that you matter now. Um, you're not just some meaningless cog in a, in a giant machine. You're not just a number. What you are now, what you think in your, in your heart and your words, all of that matters. Um, now, certainly this fits within the, the framework of my Christian faith. I would say you're loved and you're respected by the God who made you. And so that should be the source of all of this. Um, so next, I'd say you can enjoy video games, your life, etc. But your life is in your body. <laughs> uh, it's worth living in your body and not trying to spend all your time having experiences that take you away from this physical thing you live in. And then last, I would say, um, feel all your emotions. Uh, that doesn't mean be controlled by them. Uh, self-control is, is part of freedom, which itself is part of love. So, uh, yeah, I guess that's it. That's so good. It's a good list. It's really good. Good, good list to start with. <laughs> so, yeah, you can tell I wrote these out. <laughs> good preparation. Mm-hmm. But if if I may, it's because your questions were so good. I didn't want to, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't want to just wing it. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to give to give them the time they're worth. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, our next question 
I guess might be somewhat related. Um, how have women informed your view on masculinity? And that could be now, that could be how they informed it in the past in ways that have been helpful or unhelpful that you've had to learn or relearn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's a great question. Um, especially since the two of you, uh, this morning, my wife gave a lecture here at Libri and specifically on some of these, these topics. So, um, that's all part of a larger dialogue in which her and I have been talking for five years now. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, all that to say it's an ongoing thing. Uh, so the French theologian that I, I study, uh, a guy named Jacques Ellul, he says that both in the Bible and in society more generally, the condition of woman is the measure of the entire society. Mm. And I, I think there's some truth in that for sure. Now, I've been fortunate enough to have many strong, supportive, and uh, deeply loving women in my life who have helped make me the man that I am and continue to allow me to be the man that I am. Um, certainly my wife, my mother, my sister, my grandmother. Um, I think that, you know, as part of what I suggested before, masculinity implying this this relation, it's really important that men never see women as, as pathways to accomplish their goals, mm. um, nor as competitors, nor as threats, but instead as, as partners in their own humanity and as gifts from God. So concretely, some of the things that uh, women have taught me, I would say more in their example than, than actually saying something, but still, um, is always be ready to give to other people, to, uh, to care for others, to be really generous with, with what I've got and, and not hoard for myself, but trust that tomorrow there will be more and today there's enough for today and we can give away what's left. Um, to listen carefully and to give undivided attention when, when speaking to somebody. Um, yeah, I guess to sum it up again, I would just repeat that I think on every level, physical, spiritual, etc., there is no man without woman. So uh, you, the two need each other deeply. So <clears throat> I really loved your definition of uh, like what being a man is as it is a part of a whole. Like mm. I, I haven't heard that yet, and I really appreciate that. What is your perspective on manhood given the new-ish role of being a husband like you get to see that play out every day day to day like what I guess what have you learned what, what's your new perspective on that if any good question <laughs> so that last bit is totally true this um there is no man without woman well now that I'm married that has become very very concrete <laughs> I have now committed to love this one woman um so whatever my manhood is now it must be lived out in continual dialogue with a very particular womanhood. Uh, in other words, I'm no longer, I'm not really interested anymore in women in general as I am in this one uh, woman. Mm. So yeah, it's a particular question. Mm. And second, I would say it's, it's wonderfully particular. Um, and you just suggested that it's learning. Um, and I would, I would second that. It's continual. <laughs> I'm continually learning yeah. to, to see Melanie as a, a unique person who's different from other women. Um, mm. Yeah. So, but that also brings the challenge of continually learning about myself. Mm. Uh, so in short, I'm not, I'm not good at it. I'm not as good at it <laughs> as I would like to be. Mm. Um, being married kind of means that I can't hide anymore. I can't hide my own selfishness or or my own tiredness, etc. Um, and so learning that about myself means 
I need to constantly be asking forgiveness. And whenever she asks it of me, I have to always be ready to forgive. Mm. Um, it implies trying to put her first and, and me second, um, which is easier said than done. <laughs> mm. um, next, I, I would say it implies this interde- interdependence that I was talking about. Um, being married shows me that I need her and, and she needs me. Um, but we also need each other to be independent of us. Um, I need her <clears throat> to be independent enough from me that she can see when I'm wrong and actually say something about it. And vice versa, I think she probably needs me to do the same. Mm. Um, I don't need her to say, oh, Jake, you're so perfect. Everything you do is great. <laughs> I need her to say, hey, what you just did was really stupid. <laughs> and But do it in a way that I can then say, oh, wow, you're right. I'm really sorry. Mm. <laughs> and please forgive me. <laughs> So yeah, I'm still learning, and that's the biggest <laughs> takeaway. I, I, hopefully I'll be learning all my life. If I ever stop, mm. that's when uh, we should all get worried. <laughs> or I, she should get worried, I should get worried. <laughs> and you should all come and say, hey, get back to learning. <laughs> well, along similar lines with this question and with learning, um, Melanie's French, and you're American, and... Um, I don't know, I've experienced living in different cultures and the expectations that come in different cultures uh, can sometimes surprise you or take you unaware. So um, have you seen any similarities or differences um, in how masculinity is is understood or how it's expected to look across cultures? Sure, sure. (laughs) Um, I mean, yeah, I'll speak a touch to both U.S. and Europe differences. But I think it's also worth saying that in both U.S. and Europe um, contexts, there's a big city-country difference, too. Mm. Um, the country tends to have a bit more codified, um, sometimes fixed expressions of what counts as uh, valid masculinity. Um, and they tend to be a little harder to, to push back on or to, to change, I suppose. Whereas the city tends to allow a lot more variations of it um though maybe we might say sometimes to a fault but anyway so to talk a bit about u.s versus the europe like european kind of context um i think that in the u.s the fact that there is a way bigger sports culture uh makes a big difference um in high school for example being masculine is is often seen as intrinsically linked to a love for sports or a love for competition um, etc. Whereas in, in Europe, that's not necessarily the case. Even the sports are different. So in the U.S., there's a, there's a certain masculinity associated with football or baseball versus, on the other hand, soccer. Whereas in Europe, soccer or, or football, more, uh, you know, the other kind of football is, is more, um, is basically the sport. And so you can be a, a soccer player and, you know, there's no, it's not like you're in some way secondary in your masculinity. Um, I think as part of that too, in Europe, something like intellectual work does receive a bit more attention or can be more seriously seen as, um, as legitimately masculine. Um, I would say that Europeans, and this, this also goes with the Middle East from what I can tell, I haven't been there very much, but, or at all really, but, um, it seems like European masculinity can, can be a bit more expressive. Um, 
you know, between the greeting each other with kisses or um, walking down the street arm in arm with another man is not necessarily uh, an implication of homosexuality. It's it's something that you know, physical contact between friendly men is is not um, shunned, I suppose. Whereas in the states, that it does have different connotations. Um, but I want to say too, I think on this cultural point, that right now we live in a time where it is quite complex across the West. Uh, gender in general is a very tricky subject, and I would say for largely sociological reasons. Um, in a way, you might say we've lost our, our kind of bearings or, or our points of orientation as a, a society, not just in regards to gender, but um, in much larger ways. And so much has changed in the last century that I think youth today are, are sometimes left without a compass or, or without guidelines and, and left to figure things out because their parents don't know really how to help them manage these, these intense questions. Um, so I think today, you know, people need to realize that this is hard. This isn't, it isn't self-evident how to proceed through, through asking these questions. Um, so living in that context, living at that cultural moment means that I probably would take a different, I would probably give different answers if, if mm. I wasn't, um, living at this time right now. But mm. yeah, I recognize that that's a big, a big issue right now. Mm. So <clears throat> I think one of the things that has been fun to watch. I just met you this week, Jake, Mm -hmm. so I've gotten to learn about your personality only shortly, but I think it's been really fun to watch um, how much intellectual work, obviously, you've done as as a student and a teacher, and also, um, you know, kind of being here at Libri is kind of like being at camp. Like, there's a lot of people, and there's a lot of fun, and there's a lot of um, activity and excitement, and so I've also gotten to see like your lightheartedness and like <laughs> being a camp counselor uh, requires a certain level of energy and fun. Mm-hmm. And that's been, especially with Caleb and you in the same room together <laughs> oh, <yeah>. is, <laughs> is quite evident, not just to me, but to others. Um, I don't know. How, do, how does that idea of both the, maybe the heavier like intellectual side and the fun, playful, we kind of called it like childlike um, faith or activity how does that fit in with your idea of masculinity if at all Hmm. yeah so actually i like the way you said that just now the childlike side of it um i think that something that should be said is that is that's that's deeply true um there is a childlike quality and i think that um i mean i would say it's true in my own life but also in in a lot of people who come at least through our doors if not if not in every man i think there is a sense in which at least in the States, we are encouraged to put up a really hard exterior of, oh, I'm a tough man, look at me, and uh, look at all how powerful I am, and, and all that. Um, but there's still a child somewhere in us, mm-hmm. and um, sometimes the, the most violent or demonstrative expressions of, of masculinity only serve to hide that, mm-hmm. um, or to pretend to hide that. And it usually doesn't work that well. Mm-hmm. Usually you can kind of see through it. Mm-hmm. Like you can see that, for example some guy might need those huge muscles and have to spend all his time working on it because he doesn't feel that he's hurt or, or has any influence or any strength. And so it's sometimes a, a chance, a, an attempt to prove to himself or others that mm. something's going on. So we see that kind of activity in all of us. So I think it's much uh, more helpful, I suppose, to 
recognize that, yeah, there is that child and, and that child needs to be cared for. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm nothing but a child. I'm, I hope that I'm also an adult man. <laughs> and so those things, uh, yeah. So I think that the intellectual and the lighthearted side of it need each other also like two sides. So in a sense, joking is a kind of play and you definitely can't play if you're a slave to your work. If you're, yeah. if your work is what is serious, then you can't play because you can't afford to waste time. So in a sense, joking helps keep ourselves from, uh, from taking ourselves too seriously. It keeps us from taking ourselves too seriously. Um, but I also have to say, it's just, it's probably something just that I inherited from my father. Um, I think jokes help, help him keep uh, his head on the ground and, and stay humble and, and keep all, most of his relations with others friendly, uh, despite or, or even in balance with his seriousness in his work. Um, so yeah, I think that, but yes, that doesn't mean I don't also think that intellectual work is, is very necessary. Now, not everyone is an intellectual, of course, and that's good. <laughs> Thank God they're not. Um, but I think that without a kind of, of critical thinking or um, something like that, we will basically end up just justifying ourselves and not really be open to, to the relationships that we find ourselves in. Mm. Um, if you want to get a bit either philosophical or theological about it, you might say that um, both of them are aspects of the word um, there's a kind of important intellectual awareness that goes along with, with words, but also uh, jokes are a lot of times word play or things like that. Um, one other way to approach it would be to say that um, joking desacralizes or it, it profanes things that are sacred. So that, I, I guess in my own life, that helps keep me from, from taking myself too seriously, from making an idol or a god out of myself, if you will. Mm. which I think is all too human a tendency. <laughs> I think we all do that. So, so yeah, jokes can help me from, uh, mm. from thinking that everything revolves around me. Mm. That's good. All right, so this feels like part two of our, of our interview. Yeah. We've kind of covered some of the basics. Yeah. We've got a foundation. We know a little bit about Jake. <laughs> um, and you touched on this already, but I think some of these next questions are going to be more specific to... Uh, Libri and life here and how that helps you understand things. Mm -hmm. So, um, and you have touched on this earlier, but how does your faith inform your views on masculinity? Yes. Yeah, so, um, so by training, I suppose I'm some kind of Christian theologian. And so that means absolutely my, my faith can't not inform, um, my views on basically everything, or I, I hope that my, to, to allow my views on everything to be informed, challenged, reformed, uh, by my faith. So that includes masculinity. Um, now I forget if, yeah, I think I did mention the old Testament book of Proverbs in the Bible. Um, to me, it's, it's a book that I've spent a long time in, uh, since I was a teenager or even younger. And, uh, the book is much of the book is, is largely, um, a father giving advice to his son. And so in that sense, it, it is, at least in part, a, a good, like a, a masculine book. Mm. Um, that doesn't mean it has nothing to say to women, but I think it, uh, it does speak to masculinity in a way that other books sometimes don't. Um, it's, uh, it's practical, but it's also very rich. So I continue to read it um, and find new things that I haven't found in the last 20 years. Mm. Um, so yeah, Proverbs, in a sense, does structure some of 
what I consider, like the things I said about taking your words seriously, um, comes both from my father, from my own life, but also from Proverbs. I think, uh, again, to, to draw a bit more widely in through the biblical text, um, in, in consideration of what masculinity means, uh, I think we see the figure of Jacob, who becomes Israel, the, the patriarch of um, of the people for whom they're named, from whom they all descend. The name that he gets, Israel, it implies wrestling with God. Um, so Jacob, this this, you know, patriarchal man, if you will, in the, in Israel is the one who wrestles with God. To me, that says something about how being a man implies using this strength that we have, but living in constant dialogue with God. Um, now, living in dialogue with God implies knowing our own limits. It means we are not God. Um, but it also implies our, our responsibilities. Um, because we're addressed by God and called to something, that means we're also not just animals who can let all our, our passions run wild. There's a, a self-control implied that, um, a freedom that can stand up and respond to, to this dialogue. So to me, that's a big element of what it is to be a man, to be living in this dialogue with God, to wrestle with, with God in prayer. Um, but finally, I think, uh, Christ especially is, um, so Jesus is, is presented in the gospels, um, as a king, but his reign, if you will, his power, the, the proof and exercise of his, his power is peace and gentleness, but not weakness nor self-promotion, um, so there's a there's something going on there that cuts differently across what it is to be a man mm. than I think the U.S. is used to. Mm. And even Christian American character where you, you hear a lot of talk about leadership or other things like that. Um, but even leadership is approached very differently today than it was by Christ. Mm. And sometimes the church could really benefit from paying attention to, to those differences. Um, so yeah, in the reign of Christ is our freedom, but not because uh, he doesn't tell us anything. It's rather be, we are free because of the character of this one who was our king. Um, and so that says something to me. Um, also, biblically, his, his self-sacrifice is the direct inspiration for Paul's instructions to, to husbands in relationship to their wives. Uh, husbands, lay your life down for your wife. Give yourself for her. Um, so to me, that's that self-sacrificial element is really important. And then uh, I guess you could say that biblically, um, a man is someone who gives of himself, who does not seek his own glory, but is somehow a combination of humble, free, loving, and strong. Mm-hmm. And, and all those things, I think, are, are somehow legitimately intertwined um, in a delicate way, but not a, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe differently than, than we're used to seeing them. It strikes me that there's so much, um, like, nuance and, like, a dance almost with all of those elements together, which even points me back to Israel, like, wrestling with God. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like perhaps I'm not a man, but perhaps being a man or being a woman is, like, learning how to wrestle through those characteristics kind of in a lifelong way. Would you agree with that yes <laughs> yes i would <laughs> yeah um, so you used the word dance too um so during my wife's uh, lecture this morning i was very 
I was sitting there very proud of her and enjoying it. Um, and I was thinking about how, so she and I, you know, I think this is probably normal for most people. We do come from different contexts. She's French, I'm American to say the least, but, um, there's also, you know, different moral contexts, all of these things. And so coming together is never, um, our, our unity is, is work. It's, mm. it's a dance. Mm. And, uh, I've done some swing dancing in my time <laughs> and, uh, it makes me think, I was thinking of this during her lecture that that dance, um, one of the first things I say in swing dancing is that you should keep your arms kind of tense because you need a tension between you so that when one person moves, the other can feel it. That's really telling because from the outside, when you see the dance, it looks gorgeous. It's graceful and flowing, but you don't often think about the muscular tension that, mm. that allows the whole thing to happen that has to exist within it. Mm. So yeah, a dance is, is a good word. Um, mm. But also, yes, I think the the struggle with God is a an intense and, and purposeful metaphor. Um, so to return again to my, my French theologian, Jacques Ellul, he talks about how um, he, he describes prayer as combat with God, but sometimes mm. even against God, um, which is a provocative formula. Mm. Uh, but he, he's referring to things like, um, we see Jacob say, I will not let you go until you bless me. Or we see Moses say to God, Look, I know you're angry and you want to destroy your people, but don't hold to your word. So there's this human element of, of um, sort of taking God seriously at his word and expecting him to be the God that he said he would be. Mm. And uh, that implies a, a sort of combat. Mm. But we're not used to thinking about mm. the Christian life in those terms, so it, it is provocative. Mm. Thanks for bringing up swing dancing. Uh, <laughs> you taught me how to swing dance. Oh. <laughs> this is kind of full circle. Um, you might also remember my nickname, Noodle Arms. <laughs> I, don't, I can't say I did remember it. In the face of this metaphor is maybe telling. <laughs> I've come a long way, hopefully. <laughs> remember, we're always learning. So Noodle killing. Arms. So, wow. uh, <laughs> so um, a couple of the themes that have... <clears throat> come up that have been values that um yeah have been some repeated patterns that are important elements I guess to healthy masculinity one of them is listening like active listening has been a big part of our conversations mm. as well as community um and uh the importance of, of building strong community so <clears throat> I don't know if you could speak on their value as you've seen them in your own life or how they've evolved into the man that you are now. We would sure. love any thoughts on that. Sure. Yes. Um, both are indeed very, very crucial. So, um, last week, Aaron, one of the other workers here gave a lecture on imagination and he likes to use this poem by John Donne, um, which contains the line, no man is an island. Um, and what's nice about that line is it implies we, we really do need others. Um, we need to listen to others or else we just, men especially, tend to just steamroll over them and end up hurting those under our care or close to us, um, which usually is not our intention. Um, we need to be dependent on others. Uh, we cannot make it on our own in, in a lot of ways. Um, so even within a marriage, I think that's one of the reasons 
uh, marriages traditionally happen at this big, they start with this big party mm-hmm. where all your friends and family are present because that's, those are the people who are going to help you. They're there to say, yes, we, we support you and we will support you. There's this element of commitment to, to help you get through because we know that it's going to be hard at times. Mm. Um, so yeah, this implies the need to, to care for others as well. Um, community and, and for Christians, especially the church, gives us a very concrete context within which we can operate. Um, that means that if you if you're looking for how to to change things, you have to just start with what's around you. Like look at okay, who's around me and what do they need and how can I meet those needs or or how can I be present with them and in what they're going through? Um, how can I walk with them in their times of trouble or rejoice with them when when things are going well? Um, there's a phrase in the New Testament that says knowledge puffs up and love builds up. And I, I take this sometimes to mean that I think that we often have the choice between being right or being together with others. Mm. Um, being right tends to shut off the dialogue, shut down any communication and justify our own position. And I think especially in, in the polarized climate that, that characterizes the U.S. right now, um, whether it's, you know, fi- divisive figures like Trump who you either love or hate or whether it's um, COVID where we can't agree on whether we should be vaccinated or whatever um, or things like school shootings and gun rights, all this. These are things that need to be talked about and um, the attitude of justifying ourselves will only prevent that talk from happening. Mm-hmm. Um, the... I think the U.S. especially has this this phrase of um, what's written on our money, e pluribus unum, one out of many. And uh, today it's more like <laughs> um, one despite being many. And that's not really, that's not the same thing and it's not helpful. So I think that's more important than ever, this, this idea that loving one another edifies or literally builds up, whereas uh, knowledge tends to make me think I'm right and, and that the goal is to show everyone else that I'm right, even mm-hmm. if that means you know, crushing them or, or doing life without them or whatever. Mm. So, yeah, I think they're both especially crucial today. Listening is integral to what it means to be a community. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was interesting how you talked about, um, yeah, I mean, being right versus being together. And a lot of times when you opt towards being right, it, it can get you what you think you want, but it's also somewhat isolating. Mm-hmm. Um, and then coming back to the context of Labrie, um, people come here for, for a lot of different reasons. Um, but uh, as far as I can see, men in particular seem to be alone in their struggles a lot. Um, so I'd be curious to hear um, just from your observations of you know having worked here for um, almost a year now, um, have you seen any any themes uh, in men who come here, um, or have you also seen a pattern of um, men in particular kind of being alone in some of their struggles or their questioning? Hmm. So yeah, um, you're right to say that I've been here not quite almost a year, but but yeah. So we're still new here, so we're we're getting into it. I'm sure my my colleagues would who have been here for a lot longer would have more to say but in the in the limited time that we've been here so far um yeah and, and that means that I can't speak for women maybe this applies to women equally I don't know but um yes in short yes men are alone um 
I think, so one way to say it is that um, a friend of mine once told me that when he lived in New York City, um, everyone he knew and everyone they knew, and this is years ago, met on the dating platform OkCupid. And that's not because they were all on there looking for dates. It's because no one knew how to met, meet anybody anymore. And I think that that still goes. No one knows how to mm. how to be social without phones or without this network. Mm. Um, so the irony is that the the communications technology that's supposed to facilitate linkage and, and connection um, actually intends, you know, somehow prevents it instead of carrying out what it was intended for. So social mm. media tends mm. to make us less social. Um, but I would say too, like. If I could, there are there are three subjects that I think everyone, but men in particular too, um, suffer from deformations of, and I would suggest that they are um, authority, law, and freedom. Mm. Um, I would say that authority in our culture is often understood as power to dictate. Um, Law is often a crushing moral law, especially in church cultures, um, that condemns us, basically. And then freedom is usually understood as autonomy um, or freedom from things, freedom from all constraints. Mm. Whereas I think, uh, okay, so again, here's my theologian side mm. coming through. I think the, uh, that Christian theology, that the Bible totally does recast these things in a total new light um, in relation with God. So instead of power to dictate, I would suggest that authority is something more like power to care or power to care for, um, which also implies responsibility. And then law, instead of being this kind of crushing moral law, uh, can be a, a set of freeing guidelines, like the, the tension that allows for the swing dance to happen. Mm. Um, law can be that kind of a, a challenge or tension that, that living with you know, will, will create a kind of life um, and then also freedom instead of this negatively defined freedom, freedom from everything, no constraints to, I can do whatever I want. Freedom is rather a positive freedom to be something very particular, uh, a freedom to be this thing that I, I find myself to be in this body, um, in this time and in this place and in a very specific community. So, um, yeah, usually in, in most of my work here, those are some of the areas I try to work in trying to redefine those things to recast how we we approach them um because i do think most of the men i meet suffer from one of those three things if not all mm. yeah that's well said oh thank you <laughs> <laughs> so we always like to ask it's the name of the podcast mm-hmm. but sure um who is a man that has made you so that can be one person it can be a myriad of people but what comes to mind when you think of a man who made you and what did you learn from what it means to be a man? Uh, so certainly the first one who comes to mind is my father. Um, I would suggest that probably it's more by his example, uh, by the way he treats others than anything that he explicitly tried to say or communicate. Um, he's somebody who's extremely hardworking. He's very welcoming and, and hospitable towards others. Uh, I would say he's a good listener, and he's very interested when he meets somebody and what they have to say and understanding them. Um, 
and he uh he works hard but also for the goal of having something to give or to care for others and um yeah so sometimes it is a more explicit lesson so i thought about this one um once when we were young he wanted to teach us that sometimes you just need to work and it's not a question you have to work very hard so i think i was in fourth grade and he bought us uh my brother and i a cow we did not want a cow. Um, we did not appreciate the gift. But for two years, we got up before school every day and had to care for this cow. Had to, you know, some in the winter in the dark in Pennsylvania, carry big, um, you know, buckets full of water to give water to the cow and shovel its poo out the window and put hay underneath it and give it feed and all this stuff. And um, yeah, at the time, I did not really like it, but looking back I, I think it's wonderful and it's such a fun story too that my dad did that <laughs> he said all right I'm gonna get you guys a cow so um yeah but usually so sometimes it was explicit like that but generally uh all he had to do was to live it and we knew that somehow okay this is a good thing we should imitate mm-hmm. um I mean on a, a more secondary level it's clear that now I've spent I've spent over 10 years in the works of this French guy Jacques Alou. uh so certainly what I what I think uh, has been shaped by his very particular view of, of things. Um, and I would say that that dialogue has been, has been exactly that. It's a dialogue. I definitely don't agree with everything he says, but he always pushes me to think and to uh, question, am I living freely right now or am I just obeying some, mm. some larger force that's pushing me in this direction and then justifying it by by casting it in other terms. Um, so he, he raises that question in a powerful way. Um, and to borrow a theological term, you could say even a prophetic way, um, it interrogates me and, and kind of says, well, what, is, what are you doing? And is this what you should be doing? Are you called to do something different? So uh, rather than a kind of crushing law, his works to me are a, a personal address that calls you to do something different. So yeah, those are two. <laughs> I completely forgot about the cow story. Totally <laughs> Didn't you end up eating the cow? We did. No. I, we did. I remember when, uh, you know, maybe I was just some callous oh, young child no. or sick of work. But uh, <laughs> after two years is when I remember the time he, he put the cow in the truck to take it to the butcher. And uh, he said, Jake, do you want to go outside and, and say bye to the cow? And I said, yeah, sure. So I went outside and I just went, bye, <laughs> waved and ran back inside and got back to what I was doing. <laughs> I was pretty happy to see it go and happy to eat it afterwards, um, which today I hope I would have a more nuanced attitude, <laughs> a more thankful attitude towards the, the cow and the life of this animal that, you know, I wouldn't be now enjoying in, in my food. But, um, yeah, I was... Do the cowbells of Switzerland just haunt you every time you go for a walk? <laughs> well, they haven't until now, but maybe now they will. About to. <laughs> uh, well, I'm excited for our last question, because you're one of the most out of touch with pop culture people I know, certainly in your age demographic. Yes. Yes. Um, but we do also like to ask this question. Uh, have... What, what positive examples of masculinity have you seen um, in pop culture? It could be music, it could be art, it could be film, um, or really uh, anything you can think of with your limited <laughs> modern background. <laughs> oh, you hit that right on the head. When I saw that question, I was like, 
I don't know any pop culture today. I'm, <laughs> I'm really out of touch. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it won't be a surprise to find that, that my examples are a bit dated. <laughs> uh, I, the only ones, and they're quite obvious as well, they're nothing unique or original in, in this part of my interview. Um, I'm think, I thought of Atticus Finch in uh, mm. To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm. Um, also, there's a, a play... Um, and there's a movie that's made about it. Well, actually, they made two different movies. I like I prefer the older one, um, called Twelve Angry Men, and uh, Caleb will recognize that from a play that we did, and when when I uh, yeah when I was his teacher, and um, in both of those, the main figure Atticus Finch or the the one juror in Twelve Angry Men, they uh, they do what's right, and they stand kind of against the rest of this crowd, and they also reestablish communication. Uh, they bring situations back to a human level when they threaten to just be this kind of mass, this crowd that gets carried away and mm. threatens to commit acts of, of violence that would, you know, betray justice or or ruin their community. Mm. Uh, I also think of uh, Dumbledore in, in Harry Potter. Um, he's both a, a caring mentor, but he's also portrayed as this figure who has, um, uh, you know, a very... He's very powerful as a wizard in the books, um, but it's under control and it's used for the care of the students rather mm. than, um, you know, seeking domination through power. Mm. Um, and he ends up being a Christ figure. He's very self-sacrificial, like, um, yeah. But then, um, I think Sam too in the Lord of the Rings <laughs> to go with only, you know, some of the most obvious figures that you could possibly <laughs> think of in the last century. Uh, you know, in a way, Sam is the real hero of, of Lord of the Rings because he's, uh, a loyal, quiet, faithful friend who's, um, whose deep friendship and perseverance, you know, without them, the entire story would have just fallen apart and, uh, and Frodo would have died alone somewhere or, or if Frodo <laughs> did it alone, it would have been such a different story. Mm. Um, instead, it's beautiful that Sam, you know, in many ways carries him mm. uh, when he can't go on his own. So, yeah, those are some some that I was thinking of. But <laughs> none of those had been said before. So. Actually, oh, really? Yeah, you're you're oh, right. <laughs> I was like, oh, those are good. <laughs> well, well, well. Maybe I'm not all that dated. Well, no, I'm still dated, but <laughs> still out of touch, but uniquely out of touch, maybe. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else that we missed or anything else you'd want to add on to the conversation? I don't have anything to add except to say thank you. I think it's it's um, a pleasure to do this. And I think um, I love what you're doing because I think, you know, in the in the time of Me Too and the time of uh, all these things, it's great to not say masculinity is toxic in itself, mm. um, but to open the question and say, how can it be something life-giving and good to, mm. to be a man because it's not always uh, not always clear mm. and it's not always treated with that nuance so thank you oh, thanks for being part of it thanks for joining us on our first international episode of the men who made me podcast i can't say we have any current plans to go abroad anytime soon but hey you never know if you keep listening maybe we'll keep making Thanks to Jake for his well-thought-out preparation and answers. For context, we gave Jake about a 24-hour turnaround for this interview, so sincerely, thank you for making that happen. Thanks to Caleb, our Men Who Made Me co-host and our tech producer. 
for all of your work and keeping me accountable to a publishing schedule. Thanks to Bethany Van Epps and Emmy Stewart for your management and creative skills. Thanks to Smith and Mister for the use of their music on this episode. And thanks to you, the listener. If you like the show, let us know what you think by giving us a rating, review, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on Instagram, if that's your thing, at Men Who Made Me. Although we can't really guarantee consistent content at this point. We hope you'll join us next time on another episode of The Men Who Made Me. Thanks for tuning in.